All right, would you open your Bibles, please, to the, the book of Acts? We're going to continue where Pastor Vic left off last week. Acts chapter 8. Would you join me there, please? The Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles in the early church. This is God's work through people in the early church. And so at Redeemer Stafford, we are studying through uh, Matthew chapter 16 right now. So last week, we were about halfway through Matthew 16. And it, it's interesting to me because there's this particular scene in Matthew 16 so for two years, Jesus has been with his disciples, his apostles, and they've been doing ministry and like hard ministry with crowds of people, not a lot of spare time to just rest and reflect and be taught. So in this particular scene in Matthew 16, he takes his apostles, his disciples, and they go to Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of Galilee, and he sits them down. So imagine Jesus, 12 disciples. It's a teaching moment. And he says to them, who do people say that I am? That's a good question. And so, like, well, well, people say that you might be John the Baptist, you might be Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then he says, who do you say that I am? Now imagine that. You're with Jesus. And he's like, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter, he's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He got it right. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father who is in heaven. And Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail over it. Wow. Like, that's incredible. That's a foundational truth. So that's what I was preaching on last week. Like, the gates of hell, the power of death can't stop the church. It's not my church or Pastor Vic's church. It's Christ's church, and he's going to build it. So as I was reading that, studying that, this week I've been in the book of Acts, and it's happening in real time. I started in Acts chapter 1. What happened? This is Acts chapter 1. Just a quick review for me. Like, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He meets with the apostles. He gives them their mission. He's like, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And as he ascends to heaven, the angel's like, he's coming back. And in Acts chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit falls on the apostles in the early church with power, speaking in tongues. Peter gives his first sermon. People are cut to the heart. They're like, what do we do? Repent, believe, be baptized. They are. The church explodes. Thousands of people. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go into the temple. Lame beggar, the power of the Holy Spirit feels, heals the lame beggar. Crowds come to them. Peter's like, here we go. He starts preaching the gospel, the good news. It was just weeks earlier that he denied Christ and abandoned him. And now he's preaching the gospel, unashamed, bold. What happens? They get arrested. Acts chapter 4. The religious leaders are like, all right, this is a problem. So Peter and John are arrested. They're interrogated and they're threatened. And then they're released. They're told, don't speak the name of Christ. What do they do? <laughs> we can't obey you over God. We're going to speak the name of Christ. More people come to the church. The church keeps growing. What happens? The religious leaders in Acts chapter 5 arrest all the apostles. But this time they ratchet it up a notch. They interrogate them. They threaten them. And then they beat them. And it's easy to overlook that word. They flog them. The same flogging that happened to Christ happened to the apostles. This is not just a slap on the wrist. They were beaten to a pulp. They're released from prison. What do they do? They preach the gospel. They're not going to stop. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? The church explodes. So Acts chapter 6, where you've been. Like... We can't manage all these people as 12 apostles. We need some help. So they identified deacons, leading servants in the church. Stephen's at the front of the list. Right behind him is Philip. And the deacons start caring for the physical needs, like the Greek-speaking widows in the church. They make sure they get food. And so that's Stephen. And you spent two weeks talking about Stephen. Incredible guy. I love this guy. And so in Acts chapter 7, he's doing ministry as a deacon. He gets in a conversation with some folks who don't like him. They report him some other folks who don't like him. Guess who gets arrested? Stephen. It says he was seized. He was arrested. And what happens? They're like, 
what are you doing? Give us a reason for what you're doing right now. And he paints two weeks, this incredible sermon, this picture of God's redemptive history from the time of Abraham to Solomon. And what does he say at the end of his speech? It's powerful. He says, God does not live in houses made by human hands. You're missing it. You're stiff-necked. And all your religiosity, you're arrogant. You're resisting the Holy Spirit of God. And you crucified Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You missed it. And what happened? They ground their teeth. They grabbed him. They dragged him out of town. And they murdered him. And that's where you left off last week. And I asked myself the question as I listened to the sermon. That's how Christ builds his church? Because he made a promise in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the power of death will not prevail over it. That's how Christ builds his church. So what happens next? That's where we're at today. Acts chapter 8. How does Christ build his church? So would you stand with me please? And we're going to look at this story as it continues in ways I didn't expect. We're going to read Acts chapter 8 uh, verses 1 through 8. Would you follow along with me please? And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. May God bless the reading of his word. Please have a seat. How does Christ build his church? I mean, the, the book of Acts, you're going to talk through this for the next several months. But according to Acts chapter 8, I, I, I saw at least two themes. We're going to focus on two themes, two words. This is how Christ builds his church in the aftermath of what just happened in Acts chapter 7. I'll give you two words. The first, how does he build his church? Persecution. That Christ builds his church through persecution. So let's just do the, the who, what, and why. So who, who is the center focus here? The very first verse. Like, he's not the only one, but he is the, the leader. Saul. It says Saul approved of his execution. You know him as Paul. Saul's his Jewish name. He wasn't born in Palestine. He was born up to the north in Cilicia and Tarsus. So he spoke Greek first, and then he learned Hebrew. So when he was home, he's known as Paul among the Greeks, but among the Jews... He's known as Saul. It didn't happen at his conversion. It's like people at work call me Woody. People here call me Justin, or they don't know what to call me. Like, Justin is my name at home, my given name, but my call sign's Woody. For, it's Paul in Greek-speaking areas. So most of Acts, he's known as Paul, because where is he at? He's outside of Palestine, but this is Saul. And who is Saul? He's described in verse 28 as a young man. But as a young man, he's zealous because he's already a Pharisee. And who are the Pharisees? A religious sect of devout Jewish Religious people who in their mind I have elevated God to the very highest point that he could be elevated to. They wanted to remove themselves from society in a way that was different than the Sadducees. 
They knew all 613 laws, 248, do these things, 365, don't do these things. And then they added mountains of religious tradition that they elevated the same place of the law. And they made sure everybody knew that they kept every dot and iota, even though they didn't. This is Saul. This is the one who is leading this persecution. He's described in Philippians chapter 3 as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Parents were Pharisees. He has an impressive religious heritage and pedigree. The tribe of Benjamin trained under Gamaliel, like this famous Pharisee. Man, he's the man. He has the PhD. He went to the school. He has the experience. And he's there at the end of chapter 7. And it says they're laying their coats at his feet. You've heard that phrase before in Acts chapter 4. When the early church had money to give, what did they do with the money when they went to the apostles, those who were in charge? They lay the money at their feet in the same way when those folks who were stoning Stephen go to murder him, they take off their coats and they lay him at Saul's feet, acknowledging that he's in charge, he's the leader of this. That's who's leading this persecution. What, what did he do? What, what did Saul do in particular? He led and, impro- and approved of an impromptu mob execution of an innocent man. So he led it, he approved of it, an impromptu mob execution. The word that's used here in verse 3 is it said he was ravaging the church. So after that happens, he's furious. And that, that word, like it literally means a wild animal tearing apart its prey. So have that sight picture in your mind. When you think about Saul and his desire to destroy the church, that's what he goes to do. He hunted, dragged off, and imprisoned Christians. It says here in Acts 22, men and women, he didn't discriminate. Like he tore apart families, going into homes. He's gone rogue. It's a warrantless search and seizure and arrest. It's terrifying. Can you imagine? That's what he's doing. That's what the persecution looks like here at the outset of the early church. Why? That's an important question. So, okay, that's who Saul is. This is what he, why, why would he do that? The answer is pretty simple. He thought he was serving God. Saul thought that he was serving God even more than others if he was just really zealous in this pursuit and destruction of Christians. In Acts 22, it says, Saul describes himself in Acts 22, I was zealous for God. The problem is he elevated human tradition and his understanding of religion above the truth. And slowly over time, he drifted from a love for God that turned into actually a hatred for God Jesus described the Pharisees as blind guides, leading the blind into a pit because they lost their first love. They missed it. Exactly what Stephen had said. Does that still happen today? Do people persecute Christians claiming that they're honoring God? Well, absolutely. We see that all over the world. Afghanistan under Taliban rule, North Korea, Iran. Like where you proclaim Christ, you will be arrested, interrogated, persecuted, and possibly killed. Like it still happens today. It happened back then. And how do we know he was wrong? Like, well, how do, you, how do you know Saul was wrong in that? Well, the next chapter, the risen Christ confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Like, there, there's no debate here. Wildly off track. God shows grace with him. So what's the outcome of this persecution? If this is how God builds his church, what's the outcome? In, in just these eight verses. Stephen was buried. We'll get there. Stephen was buried. I don't want to overlook this. Like they took time to bury Stephen. It says devout men buried him. We don't know who, but likely some Christians. It doesn't have to be Christians. We don't know, but people recognize this was an injustice 
and he deserved to be buried. But at the funeral, at his burial, it says there was great lamentation. Don't miss that word. It's easy to read the narrative and forget the emotion. What does lamentation mean? Passionate expression of grief, sorrow, or weeping. They were, they were devastated. Can you think of a time in your life where you experienced lamentation? I immediately went to 2007. A good friend of mine, his name is Travis Mannion. My oldest son is a name Mannion. He was killed in Iraq by a sniper. Heroic story I'm not going to talk about now. But I was able to fly to his funeral in Pennsylvania. It's packed. It's an open casket. And I remember looking at my friend. I was a wrestler in college. He was one of my good friends. I'm a buddy. And I was numb at the time. And I went to the car. And I just started weeping like I couldn't stop. It's like, that's the picture here. That's the picture here. He wasn't just gone. Like, they are devastated. And they made time to bury him. And they are weeping over him. And then, like someone said over here, the church is scattered. The church that's thriving, where God is working powerfully, thousands are coming to faith. It is scattered. Imagine that. In this church, like, scattered. It's not what we pray for. It's not what I pray for. So I just want you to imagine yourself in this scene for a moment. It's important that we do. And ask yourself this question. What would you do if you were in this scene as a Christian? How would you respond? Would you be discouraged? I would. Would you hide? I'd like to think I wouldn't. I'm a tough guy, but I got a wife and kids. Would you quit? Would you turn away? That seems to be the logical thing in the face of persecution. I mean, that's reasonable. Any of those things are reasonable. And I don't think anybody would be like, oh, why'd you do that? I mean, they're killing Christians. But that's not what happens. So if persecution is how Christ builds his church, the other way he builds his church in this passage, proclamation. Look at it with me. Proclamation. They're scattered, but what happens when they scatter? Look at verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The word. John chapter 1. Who is the word? The word is Christ. Like, Stephen is killed because he preached the word. They are scattered, and they preach the word. Don't miss it. That's incredible. And then God goes and validates their message, specifically Philip's message, as he's preaching the word. So let me talk about this. Philip. Who is Philip? I, when I first realized, oh, he's one of the apostles. That's not the Philip here. Philip in Acts chapter 6 is the second name listed as one of the deacons. He's a leading servant. He's not one of the original 12. And he's described as a man full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. That, those are the two characteristics. That's a pretty good description. I hope people say that about me. He has wisdom and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And what I love about Philip and Stephen and the deacons is they want one of the apostles they weren't one of the pastors of the church. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't have the degrees. But when God sent them, they spoke and they were ready. They spoke the gospel when the opportunity presented itself. And God moved powerfully. And don't miss it. He went to Samaria. Uh, yeah. For those who know Samaria, so imagine the region in your Bibles. There might be a map. You have uh, Judea, this region. And then you have Samaria. And then you have Galilee to the north. And we talk a lot about Judea and Galilee. But Samaria in the middle, not well liked. Right? I think it's 722 B.C. The Assyrians demolished the ten northern tribes and they are wiped out, never to be reassembled. And the capital city of the Assyrian Empire is Samaria. And so as Jews started to move back in Samaria, they intermarried with the pagans there and they had kids and they drifted from God. And so the devout religious folks, the Pharisees who lived in Judea, they saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. 
awful people. The Good Samaritan parable is all about that. So it's not a good place. Like if you're Jewish, you didn't like the Samaritans. If you're a Samaritan, lived in Samaritan, you didn't like the Jews. And that's where Philip goes. He goes to Samaria and he proclaimed to them Christ. How do I know that? Look at verse 12. Skip down to verse 12. He proclaimed to them Christ. It says he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Proclamation. And so what's the outcome? So we had persecution and the outcome, devastating. But then there's proclamation and what is the outcome? The crowds paid attention. And so you can't see what I see, but like, like standing up here, sometimes it's hard to get people to pay attention. I try to move my hands a lot. <laughs> yeah. But I think you generally like me. I, I feel like we have a connection. I'm friends with some of you. He went to a place where people wouldn't like him, where he didn't know their culture or customs or their backgrounds. He had no street cred. And he got up and started speaking Christ, who they didn't know, and they paid attention. Don't skip over that. And then God validated his message powerfully. It says he cast out demons and he healed those who couldn't walk. So another way to think about that, God broke the bondage of sin and brought wholeness to a people who were broken. Does that happen today? Absolutely. When Christ is preached, he moves and that happens. God did that. And then in verse 12 again, you might as well just underline it. It says, they believed, were baptized, and received the word of God. In verse 14, it says, they received the word of God. And what did that bring? Verse 8, joy. Like it finishes with, Joy, I'm just going to read the verse, verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Joy that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the outcome of proclamation. So you have persecution and proclamation. So I'm just going to give you two truths this morning, just right off the text. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. Like, what is this text teaching us? Truth number one, persecution leads to proclamation. We see it right here. The question is how, because it doesn't make sense logically. Okay, persecution is awful. We don't pray for persecution when people are threatened, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. How does that lead to proclamation? I'll give you three reasons from the text. The first one was Philip was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He was not a nominal believer. He didn't go to church just to check a box of religious duty. Or because mom and dad said you need to go. Or because you're trying to maintain a certain reputation. He was filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. How does that happen? When you surrender your life to Christ. Like the gospel message is you are separated from God. Now and forever. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that's why Jesus Christ came to the earth. Out of love for you. Lived a perfect life. Did not sin. And then knowingly and willingly went to the cross at Calvary and died in your place. Bore the wrath of God for sin. Didn't stay dead. Resurrected from the dead. Ascended to heaven. We'll come back someday. When you believe that Christ is who he says he is, you're a believer. You're a Christian. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Philip, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how he could proclaim this truth in the midst of persecution. Second reason, he knew his mission. Philip knew his mission. Do you know your mission, Christian? If you're a Christian here, do you know your mission? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he gives them their mission. Like, we do a lot of things as Christians, so it's not comprehensive, but it's a great place to start. What is the mission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? And this is one to memorize with the family. Jesus says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Like, that's what you're called to do as Christians, to be my witness. What does it take to be a witness? You see something, you hear something, you experience something, 
and then you tell somebody else. That's it. You experience Christ, you hear him, you see him, you tell somebody else. He's like, that's your mission. That's our mission. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He knows his mission, which is great in this case because it actually includes Samaria. Isn't that nice? I wish God would tell me very specifically, I want you to go to, and then you fill in the blank. But he knew when he was going to Samaria, he's like, yeah, this is part of the mission statement. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He knows his mission statement, and he's not ashamed of the gospel. Nick came to Redeemer Stafford a couple weeks ago and preached on Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's not ashamed. It's really important we look at this and think through our own lives. Like Philip knew Christ. He knew God's word. And he was not ashamed to share it with anyone. Anyone. The Samaritans. I'm hesitant to fill in a name because I don't want to. But you, you pick that people group in the world right now that you're really angry at. He shared the gospel with them that you don't like for good reason. What he didn't say when he went to Samaria, when he met these folks, and it was obvious they were hungry for Christ. He didn't say, hey, I'm pretty sure that Peter's having a service back in Jerusalem. There's like 8 o'clock at 10.30 and 12. You, you should go here because he's a preacher and he's good. And he knows a lot more than I do. What he didn't do in like modern context, like, man, I saw this really good Christian movie. I'm just going to send it to them and hope that God works through that movie. Or this song, this Lauren Daigle song. It's so good, but it's kind of secular, but it really talks about Jesus. So I'm going to send it to my friend, and then that's how they're going to know. No, he just spoke the gospel. He was not ashamed. He didn't care what people thought. Speaking the gospel requires a love for God that's bigger than your love for yourself. Philip had it. It's not a shame. That's the first truth. That's how persecution leads to proclamation in a way that doesn't make sense to the world. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you know your mission? Are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because if that's true of you, then you don't need to worry. When persecution comes, you'll proclaim it. You'll proclaim the truth. Second truth. Proclamation leads to persecution. Don't miss it. Heck, that's been the whole theme so far. Like Jesus Christ was not crucified because he healed the broken, because he fed the hungry, because he cast out demons and calmed storms. That's not why he was crucified. Peter and John weren't put in prison because they healed the lame beggar or because the church was caring for one another. Stephen wasn't killed because he was feeding Greek-speaking widows bread. Philip wasn't rushed out of Jerusalem because he was caring for the physical needs of other people. What do all these folks have in common? They were speaking the truth about God to the people. They were sharing the gospel. Jesus started it. What did he say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He set the standard. Like, he's very clear. Like, this is it. And then Peter repeats that in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. In his own words, there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is it. They were Arrested, interrogated, tortured, murdered, exiled because they spoke the name of Christ. Proclamation leads to persecution. Don't miss it. Every time. Same is true for us today. Nobody is going to be mad at the Jacksons for adopting three kids from Brazil. Nobody. The moment the Jacksons start proclaiming Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, that's going to cause problems. That's going to lead to persecution. It was true then. It's true today. Proclamation leads to persecution. It will come. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, you will be hated for my name's sake. Not disliked, you're not going to get a thumbs down on Facebook, you'll be hated for the name of Christ. 
if you're a Christian. So don't be surprised when it happens. I'm not saying it feels good, but don't be surprised. That's the promise of Scripture. We don't seek it out. Say, man, if I'm a real Christian, I'm just going to go start looking for some persecution. You don't need to do that. At the same time, you don't need to fear it. And I, I think most of us fall into that camp as we watch the news. And we just feel this pressure from sight around us just bearing down on every side. And on our kids especially. Start to get the fear that wells up inside you. Like, oh, I just feel persecuted. Yeah. That's what it means to be a Christian. But you don't need to be afraid of it. It was true then and it's true today. If you speak the name of Christ, you proclaim his name with boldness. You will be persecuted. It was interesting. I, um, I get the newsletter from y'all, and I read it every week. I appreciate it. Um, and October 26th, Glenn Prescott, I think you're back there, Glenn, um, wrote in the newsletter. And if you have not read the newsletter from October 26th, uh, you can. And I would encourage you to read the whole thing. But this was an interesting, this grabbed me. I read it again last night, and I wanted to highlight one part of this. So if I got this correct, Glenn used to pastor a church, and one of the attendees in the church was a man named Nick Ripkin. It's not his real name. And he wrote a book that's in your library called The Insanity of God, and I can't recommend it enough. The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. My wife, Molly, read it a few years ago, and she's like, you need to read this book. I was like, fine. And I read the book. I couldn't stop crying. It just grabbed my heart. I'm reading it to my older kids now, and I will caution you. Read it first before you read it to your kids because it is unfiltered in its description of the depravity of humanity. But it's also unfiltered in its prescription for that depravity, Jesus Christ, and it's powerful. But Nick Ripkin, after his time working in the 1990s in Somalia, abject human need, like poverty, suffering, death. He decided to travel the world and interview people who would experience persecution at the worst possible level. So you imagine uh, whatever that is in your mind across the world where persecu persecution happening. That's where he went. And he just wanted to interview people who made it through that persecution as Christians, you know, persecuted for the name of Christ, and get their story. And so at one point, and, and you mentioned this in the article, he has um, like a seminar with these folks. And he's asking them questions. And he's hearing all these stories. And he's overcome with how powerful these stories are. And he says this. It says, um, why have you cheated us in the West? He's talking to these folks who have survived in such powerful ways. Why are you cheating us in the West? Why haven't you written these stories down? Where are the books that chronicle your faith and persecution? These stories are worthy of a movie. These are Bible stories come to life. Why have you not shared these lessons learned? It seems like a fair question. As the questions were asked, these men and women sat in stunned silence. And finally, one brother stood up and took the interviewer, Nick, by the arm, and he walked him to a large room by the eastern window. I don't know if that's east. And looking out the window, he said, Sir, when your sons were growing up, and Nick had sons, how many mornings did you take them to the window and say, Hey, look, boys, the sun is coming up in the east. And the interviewer responded, he said, This silly question. I never once did that because the sun always comes up in the east. And gently, the wise brother made his point, Sir, that is why we talk little of our persecution and suffering. That is why we have not written our stories down. That's why we have not made a movie. Our persecution is always with us. It simply comes as we walk with Jesus. It's like the sun coming up in the east. Just to understand, Christian, if, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, persecution is guaranteed. That's how Christ builds his church in Acts chapter 8. Proclamation and persecution. Don't be afraid of it. It's part of Christ's plan. So what's the application? 
Like, what do we do with this? It's pretty simple. At least to speak it. Be ready. Be ready. Instead of fearing persecution and avoiding it at all costs, be ready for it. Like, think about Stephen and Philip again. What was Stephen's job? Was he in the word? Was he... Was his role in the early church to just pour over the word and be a minister of prayer and to preach and preach? It wasn't his primary job. Like most of you, that is not your primary role in the church. It wasn't Philip's primary role. But he knew the word. He was ready. The scene in Acts chapter 6 and then 7 is Stephen's just doing his work and, and guys start agitating. They get in a conversation. It turns into an argument. They report him to the religious leaders and he's arrested. He didn't plan it. It wasn't the place of his choosing or the time of his choosing. He wasn't like, hey, wait, guys. I know you have these really heavy theological questions, but I need to go check Google real quick. He just walked into it. He was ready. And then for a long sermon, he paints this incredible picture of what God has been doing, is doing, and will do someday. He was ready. And Philip's the same. Imagine Philip, I just buried my buddy. I am devastated. And if I go home, I'm going to be arrested and killed. I better just start walking. Here I am in Samaria. These people want to hear from me. And he's ready. And not just here. You're going to learn in the weeks to come. There's an Ethiopian ambassador to the royalty there. Rolls by in a chariot. Philip's in the desert. He's ready. The Ethiopian happens to be reading Isaiah 53. Doesn't know what it means. And Philip's like, I know what it means. Let me tell you about Jesus. And the Ethiopian is baptized. Oh, by the way, the gospel goes to the end of the earth, the known earth at that time. Powerful. That's how Christ builds his church. You have to be ready. Their minds were saturated. And I use that word on purpose, like saturated with God's word. And their lives were characterized by heart-driven obedience, not legalistic box-checking. They were ready. What keeps us from being ready? And I say us on purpose. I'm including myself. And some of these. Number one, an unbiblical view of persecution. There is a theology that's rampant that you've talked about in this church that is not biblical, the prosperity gospel that says if you have enough faith in Christ and you believe hard enough, then you will have health, wealth, and prosperity. You will have financial wealth, you will have a healthy body, and you will live a prosperous life. I don't see that here anywhere. I see quite the opposite in a way that's way better. So what keeps us from being ready? An unbiblical view of persecution. And then we don't prioritize our devotional time. And that sounds like a churchy thing to say. And it is on purpose. Like if you don't prioritize time in God's word, you won't be ready when you walk out of here and someone calls you from back home that you never thought would know Christ. And they say, I just went to church for the first time. Will you tell me about Jesus? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for those conversations? You won't be if you don't prioritize devotional time. Devotional time in scripture. I, I try to read a lot of other books. But if you have to pick between the insanity of God and the Bible, start here. All right? And then you'll read that and be like, man, you need to read the Bible more. But we don't. Many of us. Third reason that keeps us from being ready. We don't share the gospel. Again, I lump myself in here. You would think that as a 45-year-old man who's pastoring a church that I would be really good at just sharing the gospel. I'm not. I talked about it last time I was here. It's hard, especially at work, especially with people who seem resistant to his word. But we're not going to be ready to share the gospel if we don't share the gospel. So think about it for yourself. Like in your own mind right now, when is the last time you spoke, didn't just send a clip or a sermon 
or invited somebody to church, all those things are good. I sent out a, a Francis Chan sermon this week to all my buddies. It's not bad. I love sending songs. We share songs all the time that speak God's truth. But when's the last time you spoke the gospel yourself? Because what is your commission, your mission? To go and be a what? A witness. And the primary way you're a witness is to speak the gospel truth from your heart to somebody else. But we don't do it, so it keeps us from being ready in that moment. Use my iPad one more time here. I don't know if you all know the name Dawson Trotman. He was the founder of the Navigators, a ministry that grew out of World War II and all the veterans to try and connect veterans with the gospel. He wrote this little pamphlet. It's, uh, it's an easy read. I read it a couple years ago. I'd highly recommend it. The, the title's curious. It's called Born to Reproduce, and it's talking about multiplying, uh, multiplying disciples. Like you were born to make disciples. And near the end of his life, after a very successful ministry, and he became sort of well-known, there are a number of missionary boards who asked him to come sit on their board and interview potential missionaries. So these are graduates of seminaries and Bible colleges, folks who have said, yeah, I'm going to commit my life to serving Jesus overseas. There's this interesting um, section of the pamphlet that I wanted to highlight to you. So he describes the scene. So imagine an older Dawson Trotman, and these missionary candidates have to sit before him. And it's, I think it's... Uh, a couple hours throughout uh, five days, he has multiple interviews with 29 candidates. And as a member of the board, he asks two questions. Do you believe that your devotional time is what it should be? And how many people have you shared the gospel with here in the last year? So do you believe your devotional time is where it should be right now as a potential missionary to go to a foreign country with a different cultural language that's probably hostile to the gospel? Is your devotional time what it should be right now? And how many people have you shared the gospel with in the last year? Of the 29 candidates, only one said their devotional time was what it ought to be. And he lists out all the reasons. What, what do they all have in common? I'm too busy. I'm too busy with my finals in Bible college, so I couldn't have my devotional time. I'm too busy with, and he's, well, what about five years ago? Why well, I was in high school. And some of the older candidates, well, I got kids, I have a job, just too busy for devotional time. Can you relate? And then how many people have you shared the gospel with right now? The majority had to admit that they were ready to cross an ocean, learn a foreign language, but they had not won their first soul who was going on with Jesus Christ. They don't when Christ, that language could be confusing, but they didn't speak to Christ in a way like Philip did, that people came to faith through the Holy Spirit. Not one. How do you expect by crossing an ocean and speaking a foreign language with people who are suspicious of you, whose way of life is unfamiliar, that you will be able to do there what you have not done here? Are you producing? If not, why not, Christian? Is it because of a lack of communion with Christ your Lord? The closeness of fellowship, which is part of his great plan? Is there some sin in your life, some unconfessed sin? You should be teachers, and you need to be taught again. It's a powerful indictment. I read that three years ago. Actually, it was six years ago. I was on a trip with work, and I was in New Mexico, Albuquerque. I'm sitting in a Cracker Barrel by myself. and like, I have not shared the gospel with anybody in years. And I walked outside, and there was a homeless lady at the bench. I was like, do you want to know the gospel? <laughs> Super awkward. <laughs> She's like, well, I like dinner. I was like, let's get dinner. I'll buy you dinner. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And it was, it was awkward. I was stumbling all over the place. But I told her about Jesus, and she was out there the next day. I was like, let's get dinner again and talk about Jesus. I don't know what came of it. But I know that God honors that obedience, and I long to be like that more. But I have to love Christ more than I love myself, and sometimes that's hard. A lot of times that's hard because we're wired to love ourselves. 
That's what keeps us from being ready. We think persecution shouldn't happen to Christians. We don't prioritize time in his word. And we simply just don't speak Christ to other folks for any number of reasons. Have you ever asked yourself this question? God, do you want me to be a missionary? Honestly, like, have you ever read Matthew 28? Like, whew, God, you, you, want, you want me to do that? You want me to go to all nations and teach them everything you've commanded us? Have you ever wondered, am I supposed to be a missionary? Like, is that what I'm, am I supposed to do that? You don't have to wonder anymore. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Matthew 28 and Acts 1, 8 doesn't mince words. Go therefore to all nations. He's talking to disciples then and now. Go to all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach and observe everything I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's for every Christian. And I was preaching at my kids last night at dinner. And one of my kids, I'm not allowed to name them anymore. She said to me, Daddy, do you feel kind of funny like telling us that? Because you live in Stafford. And I'm pretty sure the gospel's been here and you're not going. It was an awesome question. And all the kids were like, ha, 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 she got you. <laughs> uh, I, no, I have no issue proclaiming this from here with anybody else who wants to talk about it. Because I made the mistake early in my life. I thought, okay, I read Matthew 28. I get to choose the time and place. It's, it's my decision. I, I'm going to be on my terms. God, I want to go there. I want to go now. And this happened in recent years. And he said, no. And how do I know he said no? Because the president of the organization came to my house and said, no. <laughs> And I was like, okay, fine. i got to find somewhere else. I we're going here. And I applied. I was like, Molly, we're going to Africa. She's like, okay. And I called. I give him my resume. I'm like, I got this. And I'm like, well, you're in the middle of adoption right now. You have to wait until that adoption is complete. God said, nope. It's like, I'm not going to stop. And I try again. And we're going through another adoption. No. And then in the process, we plan a church. And we get another kid. And pretty soon, I'm like, oh. Oh, you want me to be here in Stafford? Oh. And, and that's, that's what's happening. And so my point is, yes, every one of us is called to be on mission, to make the gospel known to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. You've got to make it known here, there, there, and way over there. All of us are called to do that. What I'm learning is I get established and settled. And here's the danger. And I think this is a danger for our church and yours, that you get very comfortable in Jerusalem. And you don't remember, like, your mission is bigger than Jerusalem. It doesn't matter your age. Young or old, established in Stafford with a full-time job and nine kids, 10 in the home right now under 14, doesn't matter. So every morning, especially as I was studying this, even as the pastor of this church, God, if you want me to go, send me. But while I'm here, make me ready. Like, don't let me waste this time. I want to be ready. And I want to make an impact now for things that matter. How do we do that? How do you get ready right here? Because you're here now. Like, you're not over there. How do you get ready? I, I can give you a couple Ways that we do it in our home, in our church. Center your life around the Great Commission. Like pray for more than just your food and good dreams at night. You can pray for those too. But start praying for God's mission in the world. Four billion people who have not been reached by the gospel. Four billion. I can't even fathom it. They don't even know. They'll be born. They'll live. They'll die. And they'll never hear the name of Christ. Start praying that at dinner time. And I'm preaching to myself, so I don't mean to yell at you. Like, just start praying that, God, people need to hear your word. Here I am, Lord, send me. How do you prioritize your time and your money? I think about vacations. I would imagine that most of you go on vacation. That's not a bad thing. So don't leave here and be like, oh, that Woody guy, he said we can't go on vacation. I'm not saying that. 
But a few years ago, it's been several years now, God put it on my heart, like if I'm going to be here, I'm going to take my kids there. And so every summer, we take some of our vacation money, and we, we went to Guatemala with the Sox and the team last year, ministering to people in abject poverty with the gospel. So not just a, meeting their physical needs in the name of Christ, and it was powerful. Like, go prioritize short-term mission trip. And the beauty is you don't know what God's going to do through that. I have a wonderful friend. I don't know if you've seen those love shirts that people wear. I need to get you all some. Uh, love shirt, live 2540. I was in Liberia for an adoption. I saw a guy in the airport. He's wearing this love shirt. He was the only other Caucasian. I was like, I love that shirt. It has the Matthew 2540 on the back. If you care for the least of these, my brothers, you, you did it for me. Turns out he went on a short-term mission trip to Liberia, saw what God was doing there in the need, and it's a longer story, but quit his job, and now has a full-time ministry over there caring for the desperate, desperate orphan situation. They just completed or are completing the Jesus Loved Me clinic, medical clinic in the jungles of Liberia that will service thousands of kids without cost, and keeping kids alive in Jesus' name. So prioritize short-term mission. Like Rodney wants you to go with him on a short-term mission. Just do it. And then ask God, God, I want to go, like, grab my heart, show me how I can be part of your great commission. And then your money, I have no problem talking about this. Like, your money points directly to your priorities and your money in giving. So it is good and right to give to the local church. But I would challenge you to give above and beyond to organizations that particularly target the unreached people groups of the world. And there are many good Christian organizations reaching physical need with the gospel. And if you have questions, I would love to talk to you. And then last one, understand your role as a parent. Because I know there are a lot of parents here. It's amazing how quiet the kids are. Your baby's so quiet. <laughs> What is your goal as a mom or a dad? What is your goal? I want to keep my kids safe. I want them to be healthy. Those, those aren't wrong. I want them to get good grades. I want them to be well behaved. I want them to get a scholarship to a good college. I don't have to pay for it. All right? And I want them to do well in school so they graduate and get a job so they can find a wife or a husband and get married and make money and be comfortable. That's not wrong. But what is your ultimate goal for your kids? I want mine to go and make disciples. I want to be witnesses. I want to live with purpose for things that matter so God calls them home and we spend eternity together. So how do you prioritize that in your house? I can't do that for you. I can just encourage you to consider it. God, how do I do this? Because I want to be a part of this great commission. What will it take for you to make Christ's mission in your life a priority? Persecution? Like, they didn't leave Jerusalem until persecution came. And these were the apostles and the early church. Like, they, they were with Christ. They saw him working. And they stayed in Jerusalem until persecution happened. Persecution, proclamation. What will it take for you? It doesn't have to take persecution for you to have a heart that desires to go. It just takes humility and a desire to say, your plan's better than my plan. Here I am, Lord. Take me. Show me. Help me. Right now, make me ready. And so when it's my time, I go and I don't look back. All right. I'll wrap up here. Saturate your life with this word to the point everything that you think and speak and do just points to your love for Christ. Everything, like, everything, everything. That everything in your life is filtered and flavored by your love for Christ in such a way that people just, they know like that person loves Jesus. It's radical. That's radical obedience. That's what we see in Philip and Stephen. And it was interesting. I'm like, what is the Greek word that captures this? 
Like, there's got to be a Greek word in here somewhere that captures this type of radical obedience. I found it. It's all over Acts. Mathetes. That's the Greek word, mathetes. It translates disciple. That's it. It's not for super Christians. This is what Christianity is. You don't need a PhD to do this. This is what every one of us is called to do and be. To be a disciple. Tonight, you're going to preach on Matthew 16, one of my favorite passages. Frustrated that you got that passage. (laughs) It's counterparts in Luke 8, or Mark 8 and Luke 9. Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits his soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? It's just like, you want life? You want to find life? Give your life up for Christ. What does it look like? Like when you're persecuted, proclaim the gospel. And as you proclaim the gospel, expect persecution. And then like Philip, as you're ready for this, like watch God build his church through you in ways you could have never imagined. There's nothing better for your life. Let's pray together. Would you join me in prayer? Uh, Jesus, I thank you for an opportunity to stand up here and share your word. And I pray that you would do the work that I can't do in my own heart, in the hearts of adults, singles, marrieds, kids, grandparents, retirees. God, move in this place and help us not to miss it like the Pharisees, like the really religious people. God, help each one of us to humble ourselves at your throne. And it doesn't matter what we've done in the past. Our life is yours today. And that we hold our hands open and say, God, that we want to taste and see that you're good. Show us where to go and we'll do it. I praise you for this church and I pray that your work would continue here in Jesus' name. Amen.